Hello and welcome to this week's Not The Top 20 podcast, sponsored by Fanslide. I've said it before, I will continue to say it, the EFL playoffs are the greatest invention in sporting history and that was the best weekend of EFL playoff second legs that I can remember. I've got a huge grin on my face because I can't wait to talk about it with you for the next hour with George Ellick as well. George, this is not a playoff final preview. We should say that. This is not a playoff final preview. This is a semi-final second leg review, a post-mortem for the teams that won't be going to Wembley, a little bit of a what happens next for your Bournemouths, your Barnsleys, your Sunderlands, your your actual Oxford, George, uh, as well as Tranmere and Forest Green. And some manager news at the end, if we have time. There's been some movement on that front. So stay tuned for that. But it was an incredible weekend. Mate, 24 goals, red card, penalties, scored and missed. Some incredible missed chances, some great goals and a bit of aggro. And at the heart of it all, George, which was perhaps the best part, fans in the stadium, <laughs> just going out of their mind during playoff second legs. It's been an amazing week or so. Incredible week. Um, and there's so many different parts to the to the fans being back that, that improved it, I thought. Whether it's players, away players, celebrating in front of stadiums where there's only home fans, which I personally, except for when Ella Sims did it in the first leg of the game I was at, I really enjoy it. Um, whether it was things like Charlie White's miss um, at 1-0. Wait, I kind of just feel like in an empty stadium, maybe he's a bit more composed. Um, it was kind of the, the different angles that come in when you've got fans there. Um, it just made the whole thing incredible. And, you know, so often, a bit like transfer deadline day, um, the playoffs can be built up a lot. And then because of what's at stake, don't really deliver. Um, maybe more so in the finals, but these semifinals were unbelievable. Incredible drama. And maybe even the best save to last as well. Um, it was just when you thought that we couldn't get any more ridiculous narratives and high scoring games. Um, we did, as you can tell by my voice, I've been screaming a lot this weekend, uh, mainly at the TV, but it was, yeah, it was amazing. The only things that hadn't happened yet in the first five semi-final second legs all happened in the last one between Newport and Forest Green. We're going to get through it all and George just like last week this week we are sponsored by our good friends at Fanslide which is a wonderful wonderful companion to watching playoff football as we found out this week yeah people absolutely loving it again um which is which is good to see it is just a great way to enjoy these games if you don't really have um, a stake in them even though I think with these ones you didn't really need more extra entertainment but it never hurts the playoff semi-final competition that Fanslide ran was a huge success uh, we had some drama as well there was a £200 prize pot reminder that it is free to download and free to play um, and well all week someone with the username John T. Tolly was at the top of this leaderboard. Your three best scores contributed to the leaderboard, but he got pipped on the line. Charlie Neal won it. He had Jamil Matt in his times three slot when Matt scored at the death and he snuck into the lead. Charlie Neal therefore won £100, which was the prize for the leader. Top five all got some cash, so Jonty Tolly was not empty-handed, thankfully. Amazing drama in terms of the fan slide competition. And they go again for the playoff finals. There's £100 up for grabs this coming weekend on Fanslide. It will be based on your best two scores 
over the three playoff finals. So you can allow yourself a stinker as well, which if you're me, happens, well, probably more than one in three. But well done to John T. Tolly <laughs> for having a good week. But special congrats to Charlie Neal who won that competition. And as mentioned, we go again for the playoff finals, £100 up for grabs. There's also prize money this week on the Europa League and Champions League finals as well. So do get involved. Fanslide is free to download, free to play. And it's the perfect companion, quite frankly, especially as a neutral to watching playoff football. Let's talk about the weekend that was. And we're going to start in the championship. And the early game on Saturday was Brentford 3, Bournemouth 1. Now, that meant that Brentford won this tie 3-2 on aggregate. And for me, this was my favourite hour of televised sport since Ben Stokes at Headingley <laughs> and similarly filled with incomprehensible moments. There's so much to discuss that I can't actually think of a really penetrative first question for you. So, George Alec, what did you make of this one? <laughs> <laughs> It was amazing, to be honest. There are so many bizarre parts to this game. I mean, the fact that Arno Dandruma scored after five minutes with every single Brentford player up for a corner is so weird. You know, this is a Brentford side who <clears throat> last in the, in the playoffs last year lost the playoff final after, after being caught out by a kind of inventive bit of set-piece trickery from Joe Bryan. This time, you'd think there would be... Um, ensuring they didn't make any mistakes that would allow that to happen. To send every single man forward, to have Arno Danjuma, who would have the speed anyway, probably to race clear of, of, a, of a high line um, and the finishing ability to, to put it home. It was really weird. It was really strange. Um, and it put left them in a position where it seemed pretty unlikely that they were going to be able to get through the tie. Now, a few things happened after that. We had one penalty given for a Lloyd Kelly handball. It was, in my opinion, a blatant penalty, followed by a post-match interview with Jonathan Woodgate, where he's, it was so weird. Like He he just seemed to be convinced it wasn't a penalty. He, was, he said it was blatantly not a penalty. He couldn't understand, he said, how the referee could give it. And he said that it flicked up off, off Kelly's thigh and hit the hand. Well, I mean, it didn't. It, it literally came off... Um, I can't remember who put the cross in, but it, it was directly into the hand that was raised. Um, and it was, you know, it's it's one of those where it's quite close to where he's kicked it from, but it's 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 a penalty. You know, of course, it's a hand in an unnatural position. He's lifted the arms probably to protect his face and it's just hit them. So, But keen to point out that they should have had one in the first in the leg first as well, yeah, a exactly. foul on Fosu that was, exactly. I mean, it was it was concrete, that one. And, and the one questionable decision here was, was the... The um the Solanke foul on on Tony from the set piece uh, a few minutes later that should have been a penalty. So you could argue there should have been two down. Um, the red card offence was just terrible from Chris Mepham. Some beautiful EFL playoff narrative there with Mepham coming into the side having missed the first leg. He looked for, nervous before player. he'd even tried to control the ball. <laughs> yeah, it was like yeah. a, it, you you were just waiting for it to happen. It was uh it was remarkable, wasn't it? Great pace and skill from Mbermo to nick it. And then a yeah, a tap tackle, which you don't see in this sport very often. And, and he, but you kind of feel like he was he was unlucky to 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 execute the tap tackle so well. Like it's it's not a very easy thing to do. And it, it hey, here's the question. Here's the question. We've actually mentioned this once or twice before, and I'm not actually sure what the right answer is. But let's say you're a Bournemouth fan. Do you want Mepham to tap tackle and Burmo one on one and take him down for a free kick, but a red card go down to 10 men for over an hour left of the game? Or do you think to yourself, Mbermo one-on-one, -on -one, 
maybe we'll see what happens here. In the moment, I'm not saying there's any time to make this decision, but in hindsight, what do you think's the right call there? Definitely not to do what he did. Right. <laughs> not 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 to play with, you know, there's the um the stats about playing with 10 men, although I don't have them to hand, you know, they're they're pretty damning, you know, the 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 notion that it's it's harder to play against 10 is is one of the stupidest um football clichés going. It doesn't mm-hmm. It's just it's just not true. Yeah, on occasion, teams will defend resolutely and prevent you from um, making the one-man advantage count. But more often than not, when you're playing against 10 men, especially for a prolonged period like this was, your advantage will tell in terms of the scoreline. and Well, at least in terms of, of the chances created. Um, so yeah, it was a poor decision. And then that kind of was what, what the game rested on mm. in the end. It was funny, wasn't it? Because... When Bournemouth went down to 10, it felt inevitable that Brentford would win from that point, but they still had quite a lot to do. You know, they were still behind in the tie at that point. It was 2-1 on aggregate to Bournemouth. And that's how it was at halftime when they went in, what, about 20 minutes later. So, you know, it felt inevitable, but we should remember that there was still a lot of work for Bees to do in that second half. It was just such an eventful game. It was so good for the neutral. I, I must thank Connor Garrett, who tweeted me. I was tweeting a lot about this game, so I had to watch it on my own. And I don't know what the neighbours must have thought, because I was just jumping up and down. <laughs> I was squealing quite a lot. I was just like yelping and laughing manically. It was all a bit weird. But Connor, when I shared on Not The Top 20, the, the goal, the Danjuma goal, said, this is a rare, you wouldn't write it moment that you that you genuinely wouldn't actually write. And it made me think that you could say that about the whole game. So let Let's say, you know, the, the old cliche, who writes these scripts? Let's say, George, that I, I'd i written this script to this game, right? That what actually yeah. happened in Brentford Bournemouth. And you're the editor, right? We'd have a meeting and this is how it would go. You'd say, right, thank you for, well, thanks for the first draft. I've um, just got a few general queries about, I guess, the, the plausibility of some parts of this script that you've written for, for Brentford versus Bournemouth. Uh, so let's just go through these point by point. The first one... Ali, you've written that the manager of one of the teams runs around the touchline pre-game, whipping up the crowd and making a three-nil sign with his hands. Are we sure that's that okay? Yeah, we'll we'll leave that one in. Okay, that's probably the least egregious example. But I must pick you up on this one. It says here, Ali, that after five minutes, one of the teams has every player up for a corner, which gets hooked away, and then. One of the opposition players just dribbles it 80 yards and finishes uh, to score. And I'm, have you ever watched a football match before? Because that's <laughs> that doesn't happen. So we'll, we might get rid of that one. But we, I mean, for the moment, we'll just let me just go through them. Uh, later on, you wrote that a penalty gets scored, um, which makes it um, 2-1 to Bournemouth on aggregate. The striker grabs the ball and is then chased by an angry goalkeeper, the most experienced player on the pitch, in fact, Asmir Begovic, and the opposition captain completely loses his marbles here, chases the striker, kind of tackles him, and then gets pushed, and then goes down trying to get Tony sent off. I mean, I, I understand the playoffs are high-pressure environments, but again, that seems uh, hard to believe. Implores, we might leave that bit out of the final version. You've gone on to say that the Bournemouth centre-back makes a rugby-style tap tackle, which again, I've not seen... I've not seen that in football, but if you want, yeah, we'll leave that one in. And then lastly, a 50-50 tackle that's also somehow a goal into the top corner from 20 yards. I mean, we can keep all of this in, but I, I'm, I'm I'm not happy about it. This is this is implausible, unbelievable. And there you go. There's my there's my little bit that I've been waiting to do on this podcast. <laughs> and I think it's a nice way of summing up how insane and, and amazing. You couldn't this write was. it. No, you couldn't write it. Now let's talk serious things. 
let's talk about Bournemouth because we'll be previewing the final that Brentford are in uh, in just a couple of days' time. Um, one is Jonathan Woodgate and specifically how much of the blame for Bournemouth's very poor second half should be down to Woodgate and the way that he responded to this. A lot of Bournemouth fans very frustrated at the fact that when they went down to 10 men, they played like a team who were just trying desperately to cling on and didn't offer really any threat to Brentford at all, despite having individual players that you think maybe could street clear on the break, whatever it might be, like they did in the first leg. Um, it's easy to compare this to the league game where Brentford also had a centre-back sent-off, went down to 10 men and were the better side from there. And Woodgate doesn't come out very favourably from those comparisons. I'm a little... <coughs> less likely to slam him in the same manner that some might because I do think of all the teams to go down to 10 men against uh, this Brentford team full of rotations and fluidity and and who who are just very happy in that scenario and and have a pretty good idea of how to hurt you clearly it's very difficult to set up a team with a man disadvantage to both defend solidly and maintain a threat on the counter-attack but you have to say that whoever's fault it is they were desperately disappointing um despite you know an obvious disadvantage in the second half yeah i mean i am not jonathan woodgate's biggest fan as a coach and manager um as a man and a player all for, all for him um but it's um i think a little bit harsh to draw too many comparisons with the with the, the league game because that was a tie between two teams whose fate as as being playoff teams was basically sealed and Brentford were able to continue playing without much um, fear of the consequences when they were down to 10 men. For, for Woodgate, as somebody who, let's remember, has never, ever managed in this environment before, you know, this is the, this was the biggest test and biggest game of his management career. And he had steered, not obviously just down to him, but his side had got themselves in a position of being 2-0 up and saw the situation change very quickly when they conceded the penalty and then down to 10 men. So he's standing there thinking, right, I've got, what, 60 minutes here to try and preserve this one goal lead that we've got. And whilst they didn't keep hold of it for that long, it was only with eight minutes to go that four scored and actually killed the tie. It's 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 As a fan, you are always going to want your team to play with more freedom. And as you mentioned, because of the creative players they've got, but if you're looking at just fundamentally what was the best way for Bournemouth to try and get out of that position, the best way to do so was to try and suffocate the game and waste time, like hands down, no question. That's that that is the percentage play they, here. Yeah, they did they did what most teams do. They went four four one. They went narrow. They funneled it out wide, and they backed themselves to deal with the crosses. And both goals, one of them was a, a cross from out wide that was cleared away and, and tackled in by Yanel. And the other one was a cross where Smith, as he did for the whole second half, had a man to mark and a man on his blind side at the back post. And then the, the second ball was stabbed in. It's That's why, I yeah, I, I kind of did, agree with you, basically. I, I think that the only the only thing that I would question, I, I don't know who I would have taken off necessarily, but I thought the, the decision to take Brooks off was maybe um, interesting because, as you mentioned, when you're playing with 10 men, his skill set is basically ideal. You know, he's somebody who 
and who can carry the ball yet through through into the into the attacking thirds. He's a very very good progressive passer, as we saw with that ball in the first in the first leg for Dan Juma. You know, he's somebody who can split defenses. And as Woodgate said in the press, like his 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 work rate off the ball in the last few weeks has been very good as well. So that was the only thing where maybe I was a bit surprised. But as I mentioned, you're not going to take Dan Juma off. You're not going to take Slanky off. So there aren't really many many options that would get had uh, in order to make the defensive change. Well, Brentford, uh, we've talked a lot about their transformation as a team over the last two years, both in terms of style, but also just in terms of intangibles and mentality. And, you know, that they are they were the sort of side two years ago who might have, have struggled with the with the situation that they were in, of having to score two goals, of, of maybe panicking and, and maybe not executing what they needed to do. But they're much more used to it now. They just kept chipping away. They were working it down the sides and they know with Tony in the middle and Force sniffing around, you know, he didn't need to do much in terms of holding up the ball. He, he was a much bigger threat than he was in the first leg. And they just knew that if they kept creating overloads at the back post, waiting for a bit of luck, a bit of quality, in the end, they got both the, the Jan out goal. I, I don't want to take anything away from him, but it was a, it was a bit of luck, and the force winner was a bit of quality. I thought Umbermo really justified his start as well. He was really good um, playing up front with Tony. I'd expect him to start in the final. Uh, we just have to mention Azmir Begovic again, um, and I, I'm calling it an iconic display. Um, I'm afraid it's not in a particularly positive way. Um, the most experienced player on the pitch, probably, who's played at the highest level for the longest, and just a complete meltdown. And when you're wearing the captain's armband, I'm afraid. I think that spreads throughout the team a little bit. And and I dare say if Bournemouth can be accused of losing their composure, probably to put it nicely, then I'm afraid Begovic, I think, should take uh, some of the blame there as well. Um, a big part of this pod is just going to be touching on the teams that uh, who have seen their season finish. So just lastly on Bournemouth moving forward this summer. Well, it's a big one, isn't it, mate? Um, in terms of the manager, in terms of the squad, and in terms of the finances as well, this is a, a big question. What now for Bournemouth? Uh, there has been a really good article written on The Athletic about this. Um, apparently, the club are quite keen on Scott Parker uh, and were quite keen on Scott Parker, even if Woodgate took them up. Uh, it's clearly now, this is written in The Athletic, more difficult to attract someone like Parker, given Fulham are ultimately in a similar situation to Bournemouth. Um, Frank Lampard's another candidate they're believed to be interested. John Terry is no longer of interest. Uh, but if Bournemouth are unable to secure one of their top targets, Woodgate should be a contender given the job he's done. But there has been an element of raising spirits post-Tyndall. A lot of the post-mortem of this season will come back to that decision to give Jason Tyndall the keys to this squad, George. Um, what do you think they should uh, do this summer? How should they approach things uh, in terms of the manager? <clears throat> I think the concern that you've got with their managerial recruitment, and I assume it's not going to be... Um, you know, the current incumbent, his deal's obviously done and it'd be a massive surprise to see him offered another one. Um, the issue you've got is what is going to be their strategy in terms of cutting costs? Because if you're going out there recruiting for a manager, it's going to be quite easy to get a good level manager. Looking, you know, I'm, I think Chris Wilder is ob the obvious choice for, for Bournemouth, for West Brom, for, for all these sides who, who are looking to get promoted back into the Premier League next season. But it's easy to say to Wilder now, look at our squad, you know, we've got all these players. But at the same time, if they're going to need to sell, if these players are going to want to leave, I think you're going to almost struggle to bring in someone of the calibre you want now because there's that uncertainty around the playing squad. Um, I think after what's happened this season, you know, let's, you know they, were, they were one half away from getting to the playoff final, but I think, you'd, well, you would hope that they would have learnt that through Tyndall and through Woodgate, that maybe they should actually look for somebody with something of a track record rather than, um, you know, backing a horse first time out in the hope that 
that their pedigree is going to see them through um, because there are managers out there who will be able to do a good job. Um, you look at what, again, I know I say this every time, but in Michael Appleton, you've got a manager who is seemingly going to have to get to the top of football the hard way by actually taking teams up. Um, but he's someone who, as I said, you need to recruit managers who you think are destined to manage in the Premier League and hope that they're going to get you there. Yes, probably Lampard will manage in the Premier League again, but I'd guess that's probably more down to who he is rather than anything we've actually seen him do on the pitch. So if I was a Bournemouth fan, I would be hoping that they don't go after that untried, untested um, managerial appointment. I think maybe the fact that they got, not not lucky necessarily, but the, the, you know, the Eddie Howe appointment, somebody who played so many games for them, was a bit of a legend, didn't really have any coaching calibre and then took them on this incredible journey, might... Um, cloud the judgment a bit on how easy it is to find people who do that. It, it's not particularly easy, um, and it's it's almost kind of a case of striking gold. So I, yeah, I mean Wilder would be top of my list comfortably, but you know he'd be top of every list going. Clearly, this failure to win promotion has a pretty significant impact on their revenue for next season. Their share of parachute payments, of course, will be reduced. Um, they are a club, I think, as most people know, but it's always worth pointing out that do not generate a lot of uh, their own income, uh, organic income, as I always like to call it. Their owner, Maxim Demin, uh, this is from the athletic piece as well, was happy to invest this season to prop the club up with interest-free loans rather than initiating a total file sale, uh, fire sale of the squad. And his loans largely filled the gap uh, left by the crucial Premier League broadcasting money, which accounted for 85% of the club's total revenue from their last account. So the club's revenue is taking a massive hit. The players that they persuaded to stay this season will most likely be uh, not so keen to stay on for another season. And I'm worried, to be honest, that things are just moving, sliding in the wrong direction for Bournemouth. So it's a big appointment for them, um, but it's not necessarily the uh, it's not necessarily the 10 out of 10 managerial opportunity that I think some people might think it is just looking at the squad. Um, also in this athletic piece, it says it may become harder to ask Demin to keep putting his hand in his pocket um, if he was not willing to inject any more money into the club itself. It is understood the club feel they could still be financially secure as the value of their on-field assets remain high. So it might not be a case of selling players in order to then spend lots of money to buy new ones, but rather selling players just to accept the reality of, of, of where they are financially and and, and hopefully um, not be irresponsible in a way that we've seen a lot of other teams be. You know, Don't think that just because Bournemouth spent four or five seasons in the Premier League that they are a, a rich football club who can just you know, um, eat at the, the very top table uh, in terms of organic revenue. It's going to be really interesting to see what happens to them over the summer. But let's move on to the second championship playoff. We know now that Brentford's opponents in the final will be Swansea, which is very tasty indeed. There's lots of juicy narrative there, which we'll get our teeth into second half of the week. They drew 1-1 with Barnsley in the second leg. That meant that they won 2-1 on aggregate. And George... If any team across the three leagues in the playoffs deserve to go into it with a chip on their shoulder, feeling a little disrespected, feeling a little talked down to, a little unfancied, and I'm only talking about our own playoff preview content. Me. It was uh, <laughs> it was Swansea, and they will be heading to Wembley. Yeah, I mean, all credit to them as well. Yeah, and I think, you know, I was watching the, the Quest highlights back this morning, and I think Dean Ashton gets it right, where he just says, look, Steve Cooper's just basically done a bit of a job on Barnsley. Um, you know, there's no there's no surprises to the way that Barnsley play. 
Um, but that doesn't necessarily make it easy to set up to to stop them because their whole game plan is stopping you. Um, and plenty of, of decent managers and decent coaches have come up against this Barnsley side in the last few months knowing exactly what is going to happen and have been unable to do anything about it. Um, the, you know, the key for Swansea and this mirrors their first half of the season their successes in these games were down to two moments of pure quality, one from Andre Ayew in the first leg and then a brilliant goal from Matt Grimes in the second leg. Two players who, if Swansea do beat Brentford at Wembley, um, are two players who I think, even though Grimes has never been there and done it before at that level, we can be pretty confident are Premier League quality players. And then just a resolute performance defensively, uh, combining both a... Very, very good shape out of possession. And then two brilliant performances from Mark Guehi and, and Ben Cabango. Um, and Barnsley didn't really have an answer for it. I mean, they it was a brilliant finish from Woodrow, Woodrow for the second goal. Um, they probably had uh, enough opportunities to feel like they could have brought it level, but it wasn't as if they battered them. I thought after the second half of the first leg, I thought we were going to see a bit of an onslaught and it just didn't happen like that at all. Um, so, I mean, for Barnsley, they can be immensely proud of what they've done I still think it was a bit of an opportunity missed for them giving, given their draw but I, I ultimately and the most important thing about this now is I, I think Swansea come into the, the, the final in much better shape than they um, than they were pre-playoffs to concede just one goal over the two games any concerns about losing their defensive solidity kind of pushed to one side um, and they and it comes also with a caveat that they feel like they will want some some revenge over um, Brent, Brentford and Thomas Frank after last season and I'm sure Cooper will feel like he is better equipped especially after not losing to them in the two games in, in the season 2-1 all draws um, they'll feel equipped to be able to to give a better account of themselves um, yeah I mean I don't want to preview it too much because we're going to do that at a later date but it's going to be yeah it should be a great game what a chance for Steve Cooper who you know is is my man of the tie uh, I guess um, what a chance for him to be a Premier League manager and cap off uh, just a kind of bizarre, turbulent season in terms of the view of Steve Cooper by the fans that support the club he manages. Um, you know that that it's fair to say, and of course, using social media as your barometer is a dangerous thing to do. But really, all we can do this season um, has has obviously swung pretty wildly from the very top uh, of of opinions uh, to the very bottom. And uh, I think he reminded us here what we were saying midway through the season to be true, which is. Maybe it's true that the style of play uh, over 46 games isn't the most exciting and certainly true that in the second half of the season, as we know, the last 10, 12 games, they were a bottom half team in terms, terms of results. It was a tough watch. But in individual games and in big games and when there's time to prepare and time to set a you know proper game plan uh, and really send your players out well prepared, Steve Cooper comes out very well in that sense, mm. time and time again. Uh, and that was the case here. They played two brilliant games out of possession. I think that's the key here. Uh, you mentioned the two moments of pure quality from IU in the first leg, from Grimes in the second leg. But their real strength was, was the game plan and the way that they basically denied what we thought would happen. We, we thought that Barnsley would squeeze and harry and press them uh, and force them into long balls that wouldn't stick. Uh, I thought that he should go back to 3-5-2, both to bolster the back line in order to handle um, the aerial 
uh, duels, but also in order for Ayu and Lowe to be trying to disrupt Barnsley's back three when the ball was being cleared. And he didn't do that. He stuck with 4-3-3 and it couldn't have worked any better. I was completely wrong. Uh, couldn't have been more wrong on this front. So well done, Steve Cooper. I mean, they used the width really well. Out balls to, to Lowe and Ayu instead of them being long, straight balls to a front two that tend to get headed straight back at you. These were clearances that went outside the outside centre-backs in Barnsley's three into space. And they didn't always find a, a white shirt, but you know they were, they were pumped into the corners. And even if Barnsley got onto it, even if their centre-backs got onto the ball, it wasn't an easy time for them to then pump it back forward straight away again. So they were able to reduce some of the sort of intense pressure that Barnsley can put teams under. Um, and yeah, that, that was their strength. It wasn't free-flowing, strategic, attacking, possession-based football by any means, but it was an excellent game plan, excellent game management and and top players with great quality capable of, of providing those big moments. Now, Guehi and Cabango, some of the most impressive playoff performances I've ever seen from young players, both of them 20 years old, um, in a back four rather than a back three. And I think it's an interesting one with, with centre-backs who play in a back three versus centre-backs who play in a back four. Naturally, sort of subconsciously, I almost, I don't mark them down, but I always think to myself, well, it's a little easier. You've got a little more security playing in a back three. So maybe I just, I bear that in mind. And maybe I thought Guehi and Cabango were were helped by the security of the back three in the first half of the season. Well, now we can definitively say, like, no, no, these guys are mega. They timed their tackles. They won their headers. They made good uh, decisions under intense pressure. The second balls were key in their in their defensive third. Swansea more or less were the ones there winning the second ball. Fulton was really good uh, in that sense, just sort of mopping up in front of the, the back four. And I just couldn't have been more impressed. Absolutely magnificent performances from both of them. Um, and yeah, look... We're not going to pre- preview the final, but it's a tough one. When you've really doubted a team and you're very happy to accept that you got it completely wrong, how do you then preview their final? You can't make the same mistake again, but do you also change your mind completely uh, based on two games? That's what we're going to find out in the second half of the week. <laughs> um, George, they say that a swan can break a man's arm. In this case, they broke a man's heart. Val Ishmael. Um, yeah, that launch and squish approach, as uh, some people have termed Barnsley's style, it, it didn't work. It didn't work in this game against Swansea. And my question to you is, what next for Barnsley? Um, they have not won the most amazing and unlikely promotion to the Premier League. Um, what sort of shape are they in heading into the summer, heading into next season? What do we need to be thinking about here? Keeping a hold of Ishmael, I think, is going to be the key. Um not a massive surprise to see him being linked to Palace for one, um, given that he had like a loan spell there for about three weeks, which seems to um, be enough to to get him on the shortlist. Um, although I would, you know, as a as an Abere Eze fan boy, as two Abere Eze fan boys, um, you know, even though he's got this injury at the moment, the idea of him playing for Nishmal's side kind of scares me because I don't think that would be a great fit stylistically. But anyway, but I mean, he he's going to be keeping hold of Ishmael is going to be important because um, I think not only will teams at the bottom end of, of the Premier League, but I guess there's a fair chance that a West Brom or a Bournemouth might come calling for him as well. Um, Wait till I tell and- you about a coach that we've never heard of who's currently in the Red Bull Salzburg Academy system <laughs> and who will be even better than Val Ishmael. Yeah, yeah but, but that's I mean, a positive, that's right? That's a positive. <clears throat> yeah, I mean... it. it it's just hard to really comment on, on Barnsley until we know that. I mean, Mauer 
contracted situation is important. Daryl DK's um, clause situation is important. Um, but they are three. If you add if you add Woodrow to those to that list, they are probably the four most important people at the football club at the moment. Um, although that might be a bit harsh to certain defenders there. Um, and we basically don't know. Well, we assume that Woodrow will be there, but we don't know whether the other three will be there or not. What I will say is that Barnsley are, are getting things right. And I think last season will be a big step in their progression rather than it being a one-off purple patch, which sees them return to the bottom end of the, of the table next season. Um, as you mentioned, if if Ishmael does go, there will be someone else who comes in who I'm sure will be very good as well. But I think it would be a case of kind of two steps forward, one step back, because that new project will t- have to take some time to set in. Whereas I think if if Ishmael's there next season, then I think they'll be one of the protagonists again um, in the in, in order to try and get up out into the Premier League. Well, certainly if other Championship t- teams don't adapt quick enough and don't learn their lessons um, when it comes to playing against Barnsley, then it's not hard to see how their style, if they can maintain it, uh, will still be very effective next season. There'll be some who argue that potentially with a a more normal schedule, a bit more time to prepare for games and for for opposition um, squads and and managers to rest and and prepare, um, that maybe they'll lose a little bit of the the shock and and surprise factor. Um, But we shall see. I'm really excited because... You know, in terms of recruitment, in terms of the way they make their decisions and the way that they're trying to grow that club, it's a way that we that we respect. I think it's the best way, I think we both think, for a club of their size. And so it doesn't always mean that every summer they're going to have an amazing transfer window. And the reality is a lot of their players will be highly sought after and a lot of their players will have their heads turned by those who can pay them more. Uh, and they'll have to just keep going, you know, and, and and I think everyone knows the most important thing to do is not lose your heads, is to keep trusting the process. And I think that that is what their ownership group and the people that run the club will do because they are very single minded when it comes to that stuff. So, uh, yeah, a, a fascinating team to watch over the summer. Very different case to Bournemouth. Um, and we wait and see how they look um, in pre-season. Now, in League One, George, the first semi-final of the weekend really set the tone for the sort of carnage that ensued because it was Blackpool against Oxford. Blackpool were 3-0 up from the first leg um, and it was at Blackpool and yeah, it just set the tone, didn't it? Matty Taylor scored for Yellows after six minutes and there's just that that great moment my mind. of just maybe, just <laughs> maybe. And then not long after, a, a double salvo from first from Embleton, then from Dougal, put Blackpool 5-1 up on aggregate and then I guess at that point you kind of realise, yeah, nah, not really. Um, how did you experience this one? What did you think of it? Yeah, well, I, I, it was it was fun to have a moment of elation where it was like, this is on, here we go. Even if it was short-lived, still rather rather um, loved and lost than never love at all. <laughs> is that the, <laughs> the statement? Um, yeah, yeah. So, what, I mean, what I would say is that Embleton's goal is so good <laughs> like in the in, in if, you, if you look at the you know where they were in the season you know what the significance of that to go into a game three and up to concede after five minutes to get the ball i mean there was a, a really sloppy bit of play from james henry but for to get the ball from where he is the, the probability of scoring a goal from there is 0.0001 or whatever and he carries the ball so well little shimmy onto the right hand side and then such a quality finish as well when you add to that that he's on loan from a side in the playoffs who are now no longer involved in them 
it makes it all the more sweeter. I think it's I think it's one of the goals of the season in League One um, when when you take into account the, the circumstances as well as the quality. And it was one of those goals where when that goes in, you're like, yeah, this isn't this this isn't our day. This is their day. And they followed up an amazing bit of acrobatics from Ballard to keep the corner in for Dougal's second goal as well. They're just a brilliant team. They're such a good side. They have so many qualities to them, whether it is their quality on the ball, whether that's, that's their ability to create, you know, they're just, they're just a, a, a well-oiled machine. Um, and on the day, you know, I think Oxford did themselves proud. I think after losing three nil at home to go out and, and put in that kind of performance, if you told me before the game, we were going to score three goals, I'd have been very excited. <laughs> um, but, but, you know, I, I think as Neil Critchley himself said, you know, that I think Oxford deserve credit, but not as much credit as Blackpool who surely go into the, the final is as strong favourites despite Lincoln's impressive performance well yeah I did get a, a message from a Blackpool fan who said still confident you know have you changed your prediction that Blackpool will win the playoffs I was like what could I have seen over the last 180 minutes that would have, that would make me go actually I don't think they're good and I, <laughs> uh, so no is the answer I had nothing has changed uh, uh, everything although, I said in those previews pretty much came true so although I felt bad for you on uh, in that first leg I was also kind of feeling a little bit smug about things so apologies for that they're just like I'm sure I'm just gonna say I'm sure Michael Appleton will be will be heartened yeah. to see um the struggle to clear set pieces in that second leg yeah and i think that might be something that he will try and exploit and that's something they've exploited a lot in the past as well this season so true well they also score their own set piece goals as well um yeah they are a bit like is it i'm trying to think i always have this idea of doing good analogies and then i lose my confidence and think maybe that's not a a correct analogy go for it, it is it worms where you're like you cut one in half you think you've killed it and then it turns out there are just two worms after that that's what that's what Blackpool remind me of. It's like, oh, okay, well, yeah, great. We're seeing Yates is coming off. That's good. And you're like, oh god, Gary Medine's coming on. And you're like, oh well, Mitchell's got two assists, but he's trotting off now. That's good news. You're like, okay, Keshi Anderson's coming on now. There's yeah, just yeah. always more to come at you, even tactically. It's like, oh, okay, they're going to bring off a striker. They're going to go from four four two to to four five one or three five two. You're like, yeah, yeah. There's still more to come though. It's it's just. Yeah, they are pretty relentless, I must say. And um, as you say, there will be strong favourites for that final. Uh, more on that in due course. But just in terms of Oxford, um, never a dull moment when Carl Robinson's your manager and when you operate in the way that Oxford do, um, you have a lot of entertainment. Um, is there a lot of squad churn on the horizon this summer? You've lost out twice in two seasons in the playoffs. It's, I'm just interested to know what you're expecting to see this summer, what your expectations are as a fan as well. I think for Oxford, the last two seasons, because they've started so poorly, um, the run to get into the playoffs mean that it's been incredibly impressive and unexpected to do so. But I guess there has to come a point where if you've finished in the top six two years in a row, making that really poor start isn't really good enough. Um, So so next season's got to be the year where it's not a case of Oxford being one of the best sides in the, in the division for 60% of the season and then one of the worst for the rest. You've got to find a way to, to find some consistency. So I think it's a massive season for the club that there's lots of talk about possible off-pitch change, a takeover led by Eric Tohir, who is, he was formerly owner of, of Inter Milan um, or Internacional, I should say, and uh, formerly manager, sorry, formerly owner of DC United and was the owner of DC United who brought Wayne Rooney to to the club. So he's somebody who's been involved in the club for a couple of years. It's not out of the blue. Um, but it, yeah, a lot of talk that he's taking over 
um, properly. And that would, I think, mean that Oxford would be shopping in in different markets, maybe to to where they had done before. Um, and if that is also the case, then I think, yeah, ne- next season has to be the one where the pressure is probably on Carl Robinson a little bit. Not that he, you know, he's, he's done a brilliant job this season to get them there. And you know, I think the majority of the fan base are, are, are very happy with him and the job he's doing. But I think, you know, this season, I think he would admit it was probably unexpected to get to a playoff semi-final. I think if everything goes to plan in terms of recruitment, you know, the, the signing of Marcus McGuane already, um, if he's fit, uh, a, a statement of, of intent, I think um, he's somebody who shouldn't be playing League One football. Um, yeah, expectation I hope you levels to might, play, might, might rise. Yeah. I hope you continue to play uh, four defenders whose strengths are mostly attacking and one <laughs> m- one semi-defensive-minded midfielder, two very attack-minded midfielders, two wide forwards and a striker. I, I hope that I'm, that doesn't change. I'm half hoping that a few few people were watching Rob Atkinson's perform- defensive performances over those two games and have um, withdrawn any possible transfer bids because he was not very good, even though he is very good. And that's the other thing. I mean, if you're, if you're looking at the Oxford side uh, from the game um, last, well, from, from the game on the weekend, you've got Ruffles at left back who's out of contract and being linked to Forrest. You've got Rob Atkinson, who I'm pretty sure will leave. Elliot Moore, who I think there's a fair chance will, will also leave. Uh, Elliot Lee, who is uh, on loan, Mila Shadipo, who's on loan, Brandon Barker, who's on loan. So yeah, I mean, there is, there's going to have to be either squad churn or um, Oxford going out and buying loanees for a fee. So yeah, it's a big, big summer. I, I, I guess we'll probably find out more on whether or not this takeover is going to go through fairly soon. Well, Swindon Town fans are having a, a tough time at the moment. Uh, uh, one of the supporters groups is boycotting their ownership and they are yeah not a lot to smile about at the moment for Swindon Town fans. But I think seeing Jerry Yates score a lovely half volley, brilliant technique as well, um, to really make sure that it was out of Oxford's reach would have been quite sweet. Um, Sunderland 2, Lincoln 1 was the score in 90 minutes at the Stadium of Light. Of course, that wasn't enough for Sunderland. Lincoln winning 3-2 on aggregate, but there's a lot more to it than that. This was the first of two 2 nil first-leg deficits that got wiped away um, Well, in just a matter of time, really. Uh, what an amazing first 45 minutes this was with 10,000 fans at the Stadium of Light, George, and it was one-way traffic. Sunderland wiping out that deficit in the first half. It was, uh, yeah, it was pretty amazing to watch, I must say. It was incredible. Um, yeah, the 10,000 in the Stadium of Light did their bit early on. And I I think this is, you know, what you mentioned there, that the two leg, the two goal deficits being overturned. Um, it's incredibly impressive to do that. You know, Appleton said after the game that he um, he didn't recognise his side and with kind of a glint in his eye suggested he'd probably, given the uh, the old hairdryer treatment that he might have learned from from Sir Alex Ferguson all those years ago. Um, and I, and I've, I've, something that I've seen him say before, you know, he alludes to the idea that he doesn't use it very often, but I can imagine when he does, it's probably quite a scary sight. And they were so much better in the second half. Um, they, I think on balance of play, just about deserved to go through. I think they were probably quite fortunate to be 2-0 up after the first leg. Um, as I mentioned, Charlie White, missed a, a big chance. I thought it was quite unfair the commentator to call it a um, an open goal, given it was literally blocked in front of the goal. Um, but a um, but a big chance anyway, uh, and he should have squared it as well. Um, but then Lincoln in the second half came out and were excellent. Um, really poor marking from White for the for the hopper um, header from the corner. Um, obviously, when you miss a penalty as well, 
a poor penalty, it must be said, from George Grant, who we don't really expect that from. Um, he's had two kind of high-pressure penalties this season, both of which he's missed. Um, but he scored a fair few of them as well. Um, yeah, and then they saw out the game pretty well. Uh, of course, the McGeady um, shot against the woodwork and then White kind of snatching at it. Yeah, Palmer did make quite a big save from O'Brien. That was, I think that was a bigger chance than some people realised towards the end. Um, low down to his left, a good save. You did feel like O'Brien perhaps could have done a little bit better there. It was, it was, just, it was another amazing game, so good to watch. I thought... Credit to Lee Johnson for the first half. Um, you know, as much as it felt inevitable that the the weight of of the home crowd and Lincoln's young squad, which Appleton referenced afterwards in terms of how poor they were in the first half, I do think there was a tactical aspect to it as well. He started with, uh, well, such an attacking starting eleven with Stewart up top with Wyke, and just comparing it to the first leg, I know the psychological factor was huge here as well. But with Wyke up top on his own, as he was in the first leg, there were two things that would have made Lincoln feel a lot more comfortable. Not that Wyke isn't still a great goal threat, but you can hold a pretty high line because he's not going to run in behind. He's not going to get on top of uh, any balls over the top of a, hind line, uh, of a high line. And his lack of mobility means he's not going to press you. He's not going to harry you. And in that first leg, Lincoln were able to play quite a calm mentality because Bursic would just drop it at the feet of Ioma uh, and the other centre-back and they play out from there. And that was the complete opposite here with Wyke and Stewart because Stewart likes running in behind he's quite quick and he will just constantly run onto flick-ons they drop deep and deeper and deeper um, to the point where they just couldn't get out because they were also being pressed they couldn't pass it out the back and yeah that that youngsters mentality maybe played into it as well because I mean it was it was hard to imagine anything other than a Sunderland win as the the minutes ticked towards half time they just invited McGeady to cross and that was the one thing we knew they couldn't do you know before this leg was just keep letting McGeady put good balls into the box two of them found their target and were scored so um that makes what happened at half time I guess quite impressive all the more impressive but it shouldn't be forgotten that they were poor in the first half Appleton will get a lot of credit for half time and completely correctly but I do think as well him starting with Scully and Johnson and Rogers behind Hopper um it, it looks questionable with hindsight I guess he mm -hmm. just thought well you know we did it in the first leg similar team similar setup let's go and get it and it, that did not look good uh, at half time the changes he made bringing off Scully for McGrandles made a massive difference particularly McGrandles moving into midfield providing much more just much more nous than Brennan Johnson clearly a brilliant player who's had a brilliant season and might well have a big impact at Wembley but I don't think He's at his best playing in a midfield three and a 4-3-3. Three, three. The, the game was passing him by. He couldn't get on the ball and he wasn't really helping out of possession either. So McGrandall's made a big difference just in general uh, and it brought the best out of Johnson. He was then receiving the ball in space out wide and doing what he does best, taking on uh, taking on defenders. So a uh, big tactical switch, made a massive difference as well as, as any hairdryer treatment. Um, and you can't argue with it. It was a, just that 20-minute spell from 45 to 65. So impressive to drag it back like that. Poole hit the bar from a set piece. Hopper scored, obviously, missed a penalty. McGrandles and Rogers both missed one-on-ones, didn't they, towards the end that would have iced it. So, yeah, even though Sunderland still had chances that you mentioned, McGeady hitting the post, O'Brien forcing a good save from Palmer, I think, um, yeah, I think hard to begrudge Lincoln that win, um, despite what was an, a, an incredible first half from Sunderland. And not a good afternoon, I should point out, for everyone's favourite early season goal-scoring centre-back, Lewis Monsmer, who start, started <laughs> the game having come off the bench in the first leg because of Jackson's injury, started the game, looked like a rabbit in headlights, um, contributed pretty heavily to a lot of Sunderland's chances and goals, and then was subbed off at half-time 
uh, only for Lincoln to look much more comfortable with Walsh at centre-back instead of him. So you point out Blackpool's maybe a bit of weakness from set pieces. Well, I'm not sure the set piece Monsma is actually going to be on the pitch to, to head those in. <laughs> Certainly not from the start. Um, what now for Sunderland is a pretty big question, isn't it? Um, there's, a, there's a lot for them to sift through and a lot of, uh, a lot of work to be done as ever. Um, but there's a, there's a different vibe around the place in terms of the, those making the decisions. And I guess that sends us into the summer, at least with some, some hope and a little more confidence than maybe we would have had um, if it was the same people making decisions as it was last summer. I think there's probably an, uh, a, an argument that suggests, well, I think that Sunderland have the most interesting case this summer of any team in the EFL for as a neutral because what is it it's now three seasons in league one um one playoff final one playoff semi-final and one season where it was curtailed and cut short where they finished outside the top six this is their third manager but all the all the people involved in the club now so the owner um the manager the sporting director the head of recruitment um they have all been brought in to fix the mistakes made by the previous regime well the previous regimes to be honest and even though you know Juan Sartori and Charlie Methvin and these people might still be involved <laughs> I think we can be pretty confident that the actual influence that they will have over the footballing side of things at least I really hope it is is minimal you know that they no longer are we going to see decisions being made um, by Stuart Donald or Charlie Methvin and stuff like that without any due process. The whole reason these play- these men have been brought in is to change the culture of the club and do things smartly. So that means that the, what they've achieved in the second half of the season, and I know that the, the run towards the end and Lee Johnson will shoulder some of the blame for that, it's all been done whilst kind of swimming upstream, swimming into the tide, because they're having to do so with a squad of players that they did not recruit. Um, and... This summer, we're going to see a lot of Sunderland players out of contract, contracts that I'm sure um, wouldn't be handed out by the current um, sporting director, Bailey Johnson and other things. So we're going to see now what they're really made of. A key distinction to make, and I think often gets overlooked, is, is yes, in my opinion, this is the right way to do things. You know, they brought in a sporting director who was then involved in the recruitment of a manager and has now been involved in the recruitment of everything else. That's great. But they've got to be good at their job. You know, they have to be good at doing these things. And so the proof is going to be in the pudding. Um, I'm, I'm fascinated to see what's going to happen. I'm really excited to see what kind of recruitment we're going to see, where they're going to be shopping, um, who's going to be let go. I think we're going to see a very, very different um, Sunderland side come August. And there's going to be nowhere to hide because even though, you know, the wage bills have obviously been, been absolutely... Uh, you know, it's been brought down so far in the last few seasons, um, which in itself is impressive that they've managed to maintain a certain level of quality. But I think with the the people making the decisions who now are, with the, the, the pockets of the owners being fairly deep, well, I mean, very, very deep, there's no excuse now, I don't think. I don't think you can give them a season to get this right. I think next season, they have to finish in the top two. That the, the expectation has to be that. And without any other circumstances coming into force if they don't finish in the top two I think that is uh, uh, falling short of of where they should be Mm. and I think for the first time potentially when you talk about Sunderland being able to spend more in terms of wage bill in league one this might be the first summer where they can actually act on that I think Mm. I think a lot of people forget that 
They might have had the biggest wage bill by miles over the last three years, but a lot of that are like legacy bad contracts, like yeah. players that aren't contributing and who they can't shift. So, you know, if you think of it, I was thinking in, in football manager terms, you have, here's your budget, here's what you're spending at the moment. You've still got X amount of money that you can spend before we, we hit the limit. And Sunderland were going the other way. They were having to strip back, strip back, strip back. That makes it difficult to put together a really good you know, summer of recruitment when you're still having to cut and cut and cut. And I think most of those bad legacy contracts are pretty much done now. So I'm I'm looking at it as a positive. Um, like you, Christian Speakman, um, he's got a big summer on his hands uh, and I'm, I'm guessing they're going to stick with Lee Johnson, but that's a little bit up in the air. It, you know, last summer, George, they signed Danny Graham, Remy Matthews, Aidan O'Brien, Callum McFadgen, Bailey Wright, uh, Jamile and, and Sanderson on loan, and or Sanderson on loan, and so few of them have had a, a, you know, you would say a really positive impact on this team. So, yeah. the, the last thing I say about Sunderland for the hundredth time over the last four years, Elliot Embleton, he is your player. He might help fire, <laughs> he might help fire another playoff side to promotion, but he is still your player. He is a good player. He's not a perfect player, but he's twenty-two. He's a former England youth international. Um, it, with rare technical talent for the level, with a lot of potential, invest in him. Get the best out of him. Use him. He yeah. has started four league games for Sunderland in two years, uh, and that's that's got to change. And I'm sure they'll hopefully be on the same wavelength there. In League Two, Morecambe won. Tramia one was the second leg score. That meant that Morecambe won three two on aggregate, having won the first leg two one at Prenton Park. Uh, their first goal, George, which put them 3-1 up on aggregate, made it a tough task for Tranmere, was classic Morecambe. Uh, we've spoken quite a lot about the fact that you've got the team with the lowest possession share, possession percentage on average uh, in the league, but essentially the most high-performing attacking side, the team that create the most chances most consistently by the end of the season. And this was vintage Morecambe. Uh, a goal kick, Stockton winning the aerial, flicking it on, finding a teammate, McAlinden looking to play forward, Bit of quality from McAlinden. Good, calm finish from Wildig. It was just shrimps all over. Absolutely loved it. Um, and from that point, well, Vaughan got an equaliser um, from a set piece from Tramier in the second half. But a bit like the first half, George, it was Tramier huffing and puffing, having the ball, looking like they're on top. But Morecambe looking relatively comfortable and, and not allowing them to create a lot of chances from open play. And that's been a big strength of theirs as well uh, as this impressive and incisive attacking side of their game. It, it, it's just incredible how they consistently manage to score goals and create chances whilst not really having the ball. Um, I absolutely love it. It was so important in this game. Whoever got the first goal um, was going to be in a, just a immeasurably better position. Uh, and for Morecambe to come out the way they did and to get it was was huge. And as you mentioned, you know, for Tranmere fans, it probably felt like they were on top. It probably felt like they were in the ascendancy, but. They were basically a bit held at arm's length for the most part of it. And um and yeah, maybe some nerves in that last ten minutes after Vaughan got the goal. But uh but this is what Morecambe do. You know, they it may never look comfortable, but there's always an element of control in what they're doing. I I'm so excited for this playoff final because the the clash of styles, the way that these two teams are gonna want to set up and play is gonna be fascinating. Um and I also just think no, and this is no slight on Forest Green or, or on Tranmere, but I just I love that one of Newport County or Morecambe are going to be rewarded um, with a place in League One next season. Newport County for the work they've done over three or four seasons uh, under Michael Flynn, 
uh, and Morecambe for this one campaign, which has been so incredible. Um, yeah, d- delighted for both of those two sides that they're going to have an opportunity to reward the players and the fans um, with an unexpected promotion. So many key performers from Morecambe. Leatherham was good in goal. The centre-backs, Lavelle and Knight Percival, have got such a good combination, such a good partnership there. I really like Lavelle. Still a young player as well, only 24, but captain of this side. Carries himself like such a veteran. And if he has a big game at Wembley uh, on the highest stage in League Two terms, then there's going to be a lot of eyes on him, as well as, obviously, Carlos Mendes Gomez, who hasn't probably thrived as much in in these semi-finals as some people might have expected but a lot of that was a function of the of the game state and of Morecambe spending most of the time without the ball still had a couple of flashes uh, Songo was excellent in front of the back four as he has been for a long time now uh, McLinden's assist was very eye-catching I also really enjoyed the performance of uh, the right back Cooney over the last over the two legs uh, Blackett Taylor's such an interesting player because there are times where you're like whoa you're a bit you're a bit good for this level aren't you like you just you know he's powerful runner skillful seems to get to the byline at will but the final ball is rarely there and the consistency and the the, the regularity it's kind of the way that he he seems to get weaker and weaker as the match goes on is is probably uh um yeah goes against him but a lot of that was Cooney just being relentless you know he'd, he'd get beaten by Blackett Taylor a few times but he didn't give up and and in the end he won both battles you'd say over the two legs um what now for Tranmere is uh is the obvious question another team with a lot to sort out uh another team like their fellow uh semi-final losers in Forest Green who made a, a decision to sack their manager in order to give themselves a better chance of winning the playoffs, uh, only to lose in the semi-final. So no manager, George. Uh, Sean actually tweeted as Tramir fan to point out they've only got four players under contract as well. They are good players, in fairness. McDonald, the left-back, Spearing, uh, James Vaughan, Davis as well, the keeper, although he's injured until probably Christmas time. Um, so a whole new team, a whole new squad to buy. No manager currently at the helm. Uh, you always start a little bit late when you've been in the playoffs as well. Big big, big few weeks or let's say six weeks from now for Tramir to be considered, you know, well set for a, for a, a, an automatic promotion tilt next season. But I think that has to be the expectation, doesn't it? Yeah, I, I guess it does. I mean, again, without knowing any of the playing staff or the, the manager, it's hard to say where the expectation should be. But I think as long as the, the Palios is, uh, are the owners, um, we've seen that they can you know, the, the level of support they give to the club at League Two is enough to to warrant a, a place at least in the playoffs. So, yeah, I, I guess so. I, I think for Tranmere, the the situation they find themselves in with regards to contracts isn't necessarily a bad one. I, I think that they have, except for one mazy run um, in the second half of the season, have been largely poor for this campaign. And it's taken, you know, even a, a pretty good manager in Keith Hill um, couldn't, well, I think he did get a tune out of them, but it just wasn't done in a way that was deemed acceptable by the fan base and the owners. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, it's very hard to say now what's going to happen. We'd have to see who they're going to get. Um, it's a it's a big decision to make. They took a massive risk by appointing um, Mike Jackson last summer, and that did not pay off. Um, and I guess after what's happened with Keith Hill, where obviously his kind of old school method of of, of management wasn't um one that got a good reaction from the from the playing staff i assume we're probably going to see something a bit different i I guess we're likely to see a young coach um somebody with maybe more modern methods come in um as the antidote to to hill 
Um, but there's no way that any Chamir fan or, or owners, I don't, I don't think, is regretting the way that they approached the Hill sacking. Um, it just wasn't enough. And, and they played OK, I thought, over the two legs. You know, it wasn't as if they were terrible. Um, they huffed and they puffed, but there's Morecambe, as we know, just such a good side at, at doing what they do. Uh, and it wasn't enough over the two legs. And it was a similar top line in the other second leg Forest Green beating Newport 4-3 Newport winning 5-4 in aggregate so very different the way uh, it sort of uh, shook out but ultimately it's the team with uh, a manager who's been there for a long time a very settled squad and style of play beating the team that went for the the pure vibes approach of, of sacking their manager and trying to just raise the atmosphere um, into the playoffs Forest Green uh, are not heading to Wembley but Newport are uh, it was <laughs> ridiculous it was like we saw five really good playoff semi-final second legs and you again you probably thought like maybe this game will just maybe this will be quiet maybe Newport will just see it out and you know be a bit a bit of a sleepy one far from it and completely the opposite probably the most ridiculous of all the games somehow <laughs> played in ridiculous biblical conditions I actually saw Noah's Ark float past in the second half packed uh, packed to the rafters with animals, obviously. Um, that was that was what the conditions were like, and I think in a in a honestly, I think in a regular season game, it probably would have been abandoned um, around half time, but it wasn't, and I'm glad it wasn't. Just a reminder of what happened, George. Before I ask you anything more significant, because a two nil first leg, you got. a two nil first leg lead was wiped out. Um, by the eighth minute, uh, in fact, within 60 seconds, an Ebu Adams near post flick hit the net at six minutes, 44 seconds. And then Collins' first time finish uh, from across from the left hit the net at seven minutes and 44 seconds. And then a little bit like Sunderland Lincoln, it was a bit like, oh, okay, well, uh, well, we've done what we what we really needed to do. Well, what do we do here? Do we, do we continue to go gung-ho? Uh, or do we kind of pretend it's the start of the first leg again? And and that's kind of what happened. It was it was actually quite quiet until 52 minutes when a Cadden free kick went all the way in. A uh, bit of a weird one with a very offside Ebu Adams definitely trying to play the ball, missing it. It went in. He was offside and, and again, <laughs> clearly playing the ball, but but nothing given there. The goal was given. And then on, in 69 minutes, George, the, the story of the playoffs probably, the 69-year-old, sorry, the 42-year-old. <laughs> Very good. Kevin nice. Ellison, now the oldest playoff goal scorer ever, two and a half years older than Super Kevin Phillips was, um, just sort of weirdly like curled, clipped it in from like 25 yards over the top of the goalkeeper, in off the bar, levelled it up, uh, uh, Five minute late. Five minutes later, Labadee put them ahead. I think I'm getting this right. And then Jamil Matt equalised with Forest Green towards the end, expertly guiding in across to send it to extra time. So we had bonus football. It was very tense. Again, ridiculous conditions. I really hope everyone was watching this one because it was just amazing. And then right at the end, Nicky Maynard of all people, who looked like he was not going to be finishing any chances that came his way. Little clip ball over the top. I would say that uh, Sweeney of Forest Green and McGee, the goalkeeper, did not cover themselves in glory. And there was Maynard who snuck in and, and finished it off. Just It was an amazing noise, wasn't it, when he scored? It was almost like... Ha, ha, I, I can see the ball's gone into the net, but it was almost complete silence at the new lawn. It was... Uh, an amazing game. Uh, all of Newport substitutes scored, um, which is incredible. Uh, and Ellison, probably the right place to start, do you think? It's just, uh, all of this is crazy. At the start of the season, he thought he was going to have to retire. He was looking at jobs um, in a local factory. Uh, and now 
he is a key part of a team heading to Wembley looking for promotion to League One. Where I wanted to ask you is, do what what did he say in the celebration? He runs off and he points up and he screams. I watched it like five times trying to work it out and I couldn't work out what it was. I was wondering if he knew. Um, I mean, it's it's an unbelievable story. It's a ridiculous finish, and and like the whole scheme of the tie as well, where Forest Green playing in front of their fans getting 3-0 up, like absolute mayhem in, in the stands and the players obviously so pumped for it as well. Just to have the ultimate EFL wind-up merchant <laughs> get the ball, put it on his left foot and hit this. It's such a weird, great strike. It's like a it's like a banana banana ball um, kissing the other side of the bar and going in. An absolutely incredible, iconic EFL moment that none, none, you know, none of us will forget. And just incredible to think that if they win at Wembley, there's every chance that Kevin Addison's doing that in League One next season, age 43. Um, amazing. And then, yeah, the way the, way the game finished, um, incredibly disappointing for Forest Green to concede with two minutes left before penalties. And in that manner as well, it was such a soft goal. and It was so easy for Maynard to get around, take around the keeper. Um, nearly an unbelievable stop on the when a, a tackle on the line. Um, but I think Newport do deserve it. Um, for Jimmy Ball, it's a hell of an effort. Uh, as a as a managerial rookie to get his side overcoming that deficit um, and frustrating for him not to be able to to press at home, but um, yeah, great tie, great and let's, yeah, one of the best playoff um, ties I can remember. I, I guess it it was the one game where I just wish there was a pocket of away fans, um, both for the Ellison goal and for the um, and for the uh, the Maynard strike because yeah. that would have been some some sight. But yeah, amazing stuff. Well, of course, Kevin Ellison versus Derek Adams round one in the regular season was amazing. Uh, and we get that at Wembley as well. That'll be a big part of the pre-match narrative there. We'll be previewing those games in a few days. And of course, Morecambe and Newport in the 15-16 season, George, just as we started the pod towards the end of that season, they finished 21st and 22nd uh, in League Two. Now one of them will be playing in League One next season. Uh, they've come a long way. And as for Forest Green, you mentioned Jimmy Ball there. Another team heading into the summer without mm. a, without a permanent manager. I, I imagine Mark Cooper probably quite smug watching back last night. Um, Chairman Dale Vince, when he sacked Mark Cooper, said the decision we made today was about giving ourselves the best chance of securing promotion with six games left. They didn't. Uh, they weren't a million miles away, of course. I think a lot of people have really enjoyed Jimmy Ball's general demeanour uh, in his caretaker role. But it's difficult to second guess Dale Vince, isn't it, in terms of how this summer will look. Um, they've been there or thereabouts for a good few seasons now, but they're struggling to actually get over the line. Yeah, I mean, they've got to start from scratch again, really, um, because, you know, I mentioned with Ishmael how it's a certain project under a certain manager. The, the Cooper project lasted quite a long time and it had some levels of success, but it never ended in, in a promotion. So I think the way that they operated under Cooper and the way that Dale Vince kind of runs the club, I'd be very, very surprised if they're not looking to bring someone in to be a long-term manager, to be at the club, to take them into League One and, and hopefully even further, given their ambitions. Who that's going to be, I, I don't know. There doesn't really seem to be a standout contender. Um, I think it would be a... I'm not going to say a mistake. I think it would be a massive risk to give it to Ball on the back of this. Um, I think it would be a surprise if there aren't candidates who are better fits. Um, but we'll see. I mean, he's certainly brought back some positivity um, but maybe that was just Cooper leaving. Cooper's now five on, I see, for the for the Barrow job. Ah, 
interesting mm. interesting yeah. well um uh, lots to look at with the six teams that we've spoken about in depth today uh, whether it's bournemouth or barnsley whether it's sunderland or oxford whether it's uh, forest green or Tranmere, there's yeah a lot of work to be done at those clubs over the next few weeks and months to be ready for more of the same next season. And um, we have got a new club to welcome to the EFL, George. This is the news section now. Quick fire, because we've overrun as always. As yeah. Sutton United. Welcome to the EFL Sutton United. That's nice, isn't it? Welcome. Welcome. Le- yes. League Two football, uh, another uh, in and around South London. Good news for those <laughs> of us who live in uh, in and around. Stone's throw from where you're sitting. In and around um, South. I reckon if I left now... Um, I'd be there in depends if I took the car or public transport but I'd be there easily within the hour which is uh, great for me personally they do have to do a Harrogate though Sutton well known for uh, being a great community hub and at the forefront of that their 3G pitch which they're allowed to play on in non-league but will not be allowed to play on unless the EFL change their rules uh, in the EFL so like Harrogate I guess uh, in order to accept their place in League 2 they will need to uh, change that which uh, is a shame I think Uh, the, the general reaction to that is could we maybe could we have a think about those rules? Could we update that? It's it's not something that I know a huge amount about. Three uh, G versus normal pitches and and what the downsides to allowing them in the EFL would be. But for Sutton, um, on a sort of human and community level, uh, it's a shame. It's an issue because it's a really important part of the local community. And uh, you know, obviously, you can't let a load of kids on your grass pitch uh, <laughs> every day after school for football training uh, when you've got uh, a game against you know. Harrogate on Saturday. I mean, I assume if they were to make it legal to have 3G pitches or 4G pitches in, in the EFL, in 10 years' time, how many clubs do you reckon would have 3G or 3 or 4G pitches? How many clubs do you think would have 3G or 4G pitches? Loads. Loads. Absolutely loads. Wouldn't be many slide because, tackles anymore, would there? Well, well, you wouldn't... Exactly. So you, you wouldn't be able... I mean, I, I definitely agree with what you're saying, but therein lies part of the problem. Yeah. You know, they would all see possibilities to make money. Like, if, imagine EFL clubs could rent out their pitch consistently for for games or for you know for youth groups or whatever um whilst also never having to relay it it would yeah i I think it would i I guess that is the issue is that if we want to have football as a game that's played on grass and not spreadsheets then (laughs) then we need to keep with the grass well nice story is clive baxter a 69 year old kit man who works for free at Sutton united he started as a t-boy at the age of 10 and he, wow. he's now kit man. He works for free. Isn't that Mark Bonner's story at Cambridge? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, Stu James, who we love and follow very closely, tweeted to say, when Baxter got married, his wife took over the catering at the club because it was the only way she could see him. Oh, that's nice. So welcome, <laughs> nice. Clive and Sutton. Looking yeah. forward to coming to visit uh, early next season. We'll be down probably in August at some point, I guess. And then some managerial news quite a lot in fact george uh Ken- you have to n- next time you go to a kingstonian game you're gonna have to not sing songs about sutton otherwise if they get it on camera and then use it against you in your efl punditry as being somebody who's sung mean songs about them so as someone who goes to circa three to five kingstonian games a year um and thinks it's very important to be uh, unbiased in my coverage of the EFL. Yeah. Uh, I am going to have to sit down this summer and uh, erase from my memory any negative chance that I might have joined in uh, with about Sutton United because, Good man. yeah, it's, uh, as you say, it's going to be a tough one. Um, <laughs> George, what do you think about, talk about me having a local League Two club, your local League Two club, um, as you are on a different part 
uh, different side of London to me is uh, Leighton Orient, and they have a new yeah. manager who you've actually received a lot of stick for your support of in the last <laughs> few years. Kenny Jacket moving nearer to his biggest fan, George Ellick. Yeah, if I was to get in my car and drive, uh, I'll probably be there in about four minutes. Um, <laughs> although it's a nightmare one-way one way system around me, so it might take me a bit longer. Um, I it's it's a really interesting appointment. It feels a little bit. My only worry is it feels a little bit like a bit of a winding down appointment, as in in terms of jacket, not not Orient. You know, it feels to me like somebody's maybe been like, you know what, I'm whatever. What is he sixty? And I'm. You know, he's from Watford's. He's been London-based before with Millwall. You know, just it doesn't really matter if it's in League Two. Let's just go back home, get a nice job, and hope for the best. You know, he's still, I think, a very you know, he, he's a very capable manager who's coming for a lot of flack at Pompey, and I can understand why he maybe think you know I'm just not not too fussed about taking jobs higher up. I'm not particularly surprised that he's gone down to League Two level. Um, I think it's definitely it puts Orient in a much stronger position. I mean, since Justin Edinburgh's um, death. I think it's in terms of looking in from the outside. I think Jacket offers that similar caliber of of management. Um, you know, Joby, of course, did a decent job as a caretaker, but I think Jacket comes in with that track record and that experience, and, and I do think that they will be um, stronger for it. So I'm excited to see. It. As I say, my only my, my only concern is it's a it's a bit of a whether or not Jacket's been the most ambitious by taking this job, I think probably if he'd, if he'd looked for it, he could have got a League One job. But, you know, that should make Orient themselves stronger. But maybe working in more a more comfortable conditions, environment Definitely. for him. Yeah, could, yeah, you yeah. Know, could be, it's hard to second guess, isn't it? I know exactly yeah. what you're saying. I'm really positive about this for Orient. I'm excited. I think it's a coup. Um, I don't think that Jacket and Pompey, obviously, was the right fit for, for their ambitions. But I, I can easily see... Put it this way, I rate Leighton Orient a lot higher now just on the basis of this appointment heading into next season than I did one week ago. Um, this is a man with a lot of experience in the game with success, fairly recent success. This isn't some like old dinosaur who has no idea how to get results. Um, Portsmouth have finished in and around the top six for basically every season under him, right? And I think this is a big coup for Orient. Uh, I think he... Has a lot of good contacts in the game, which I'm sure will help them in terms of recruitment. Um, and let's hope that he is, yeah, fully motivated, good, good environment for him, and and hopefully it could be a, a match made in heaven. I really, I'm really, really positive about it. I'm also mm -hmm. positive about Richie Wellens to Doncaster. We spoke last week on our How Did Our One to Twenty Fours Do podcast that we put Swindon, I think, twelfth last season, and a huge part of that was just rating Richie Wellens. Now, obviously, one year on after leaving Swindon joining Salford and then leaving Salford not long after having failed their pretty lofty uh, expectations of him. You know, he's taken not just one hit, but a couple of hits, Wellens. Uh, so to a lot of people will just look at league positions and think, oh, getting a job in a uh, league, uh, league one mid-table side is uh, uh, is kind of a, a really good outcome for him, which uh, I agree with. And I, I think that this, uh, again, on paper, looks like it could be a bit of a match made in heaven. What do you think? Yeah, I think I probably agree. Um I think that he's somebody who now, again, after for, for twice in his career, he's kind of had to, um, yeah, he, he's he's had to prove himself again. I think the, the Oldham job he probably regrets taking, and there were probably some question marks about his ability. And then he went to Swindon and did what he did, and he's coming here now off the back of of getting the sack from a pretty cushy League Two job um, in um, uh, at Salford. So. Yeah, this is a. I mean, it's he's obviously fallen on his feet. This is his biggest job to date so far. 
with, with, the, with the Lonies making up quite a big part of their squad um, last season, it's, there's going to be a fairly big job in terms of a player churn. Um, but I, yeah, I mean, I think Doncaster are going to be in a, in a good position next season on, under Weddens, especially given that he's going to have a whole summer to um, to bring in the players that he wants. George, uh, 8% of all League Two managers are called Matt Taylor. Did you know wow. that? Yeah. No. Two out of 24 now. One in 12. That's because Matt Taylor is the Exeter City manager. And Matt Taylor is also the Walsall manager. Um, formerly known as Matty. Used to score a lot of absolute worldies in the Prem. Lovely left remember. peg. Um, always come across like quite a nice chap. And he's now a League Two manager, so I'm really excited about this. I had it fallen off my radar for a year or two, if I'm honest. But he's been at Tottenham Hotspur, working as a coach there. Uh, that's where he finished this season, and then he will be heading to be Walsall's head coach. Um, they, you know, they kind of need this to work. The second half of the season was very, very poor for Walsall, but they are going down the young manager, experienced assistant manager, director of football approach, which, uh, if it clicks can be very, very good for a club, and let's hope that it does. Uh, another club who, like every club in League One, League Two, uh, and most, have a lot of work to do this summer, recruitment-wise. Uh, it's not clear how flexible they'll be in terms of being able to spend. Uh, of course, they, they had to sell Adebayo in, in January and Zach Jules as well, because, like many teams, they have lost a lot of money this year. So, uh, a tough first job in many ways for Matt Taylor, but a good opportunity for him, and we look forward to seeing uh, if he can use some of his contacts from his playing games and those Spurs contacts to to put together a good Walsall side next season. Um, and that's it from us on this podcast. It's been an absolute yes. joy, a pleasure and a delight to review the semi-finals of the playoffs with you and to chat about some manager news as well at the end there. Guys, thank you for joining us for this one. Make sure you're listening to both uh, the Not The Top 20 pod playoff final preview on probably Thursday as well as the Totally Football League show extra time playoff final preview they will be different they will both be packed with interesting bits and analysis and some interviews on the Totally Football League show extra time as well Um, well worth your time so do join us for those as we gear up for what we hope will be an amazing weekend of, of playoff finals Brentford against Swansea Lincoln City against Blackpool and Morecambe against Newport. So much to get excited about. Thanks for joining us. Make sure you play Fan Slide this coming weekend in the playoff finals. There's a competition with £100 up to grabs for this free-to-play, free-to-download, um, in-play fantasy game, the first of its kind, the perfect companion if you're watching these games from the sofa this weekend. Your best two scores over the three playoff finals will contribute to the leaderboard uh, and yeah £100 up for grabs so get involved play this week on the Europa League and Champions League finals as well thank you to Fanslide for their support of this podcast we've really enjoyed working with them this season and we'll be back next week to review the playoff finals it'll be the last of the season guys looking forward to it thanks for listening go well <laughs>